0: The said Jenkins then called very loudly and said, I've found the traitors, and presently company enough was with him, who there saw the said priests, and when there was no remedy for them but Nolan's Volans, courteously yielded themselves. Shortly after came one master Reed, another justice of the peace of the said shire, to be assistant in these affairs. Of all which matters, news was immediately carried in great haste to the lords of the Privy Council, who gave further commission that the said priests and certain others, their associates, should be brought to the court under the conduction of myself and the said Jenkins, with a commandment to the sheriff to deliver a sufficient aid forth of his shire for the safe bringing up of the said people. But then came and received into his charge the said priests and certain others from that day until Thursday following. The fourth priest which was by us brought up to the Tower, whose name is William Philby, was not taken with the said campion and the rest in the said house, but was apprehended and taken in our watch by chance. Upon Thursday, the 20th day of July last, we set forwards from the said Master Yate his house towards the court with our said charge, being assisted by the said Master Lydcott and Master Wiseman and a great sort of their men, who never left us until we came to the Tower of London. There were besides, that guarded us thither, fifty or sixty horsemen, very able men and well appointed, which we received by the said sheriff his appointment. We went that day to Henley-upon-Thames, where we lodged that night. And about midnight we were put into great fear by reason of a very great cry and noise that the said Philby made in his sleep, which wakened the most that were that night in the house, and that in such sort that every man almost thought that some of the prisoners had been broken from us and escaped, although there was in and about the same house a very strong watch appointed and charged for the same. The aforesaid Master Lydcott was the first that came unto them, and when the matter was examined, it was found no more but that the said Philby was in a dream, and, as he said, in verily thought but one to be ripping down his body and taking out his bowels. From a report by a government agent on the arrest
1: of the Catholic priest Edmund Campion and his associates, 17th of July, 1581. This is Bloody Violent History. My name is Tom Ashton and his name is James Jackson. Traitor. This word reeks of terrible crimes. heinous acts, the worst offence a man can commit against his fellow man, be it the leader or the state. Et tu brute, Julius Caesar's plaintive cry to his old friend and ally, as the knife, one of twenty three wounds, slid between his ribs. For Brutus was an honourable man. And yet, traitors are ever present, giving aid and comfort to the enemy. Democracies have a duty to protect their citizens by hunting down and locking up spies and traitors. Unfortunately, more autocratic states can treat Any dissent as a treacherous act. And before long you have the Gulag Archipelago and Uyghur re-education camps. The most vicious and brutal punishments await the uncovered traitor. More severe than for any other crime, the death penalty in the UK was abolished in 1965, except in matters of treason against the Crown. This was finally lifted more than 30 years later. It is also true that a traitor is someone else's hero. But, Jamie, was it really worth 30 pieces of silver? You, you talked about autocracy and treachery. And
2: there is this difference, really, between the, the legal definition in the West that has been adopted widely in in democratic nations. It's, It's a very narrow definition of what treason is. But as soon as you get autocracies, as soon as you get political systems underpinned by an extremist political creed or by a religious orthodoxy, you're in trouble. The net is spread very wide. So you get the gulag system in the Soviet Union. You get the Uyghur, as you mentioned, You know, over a million of them in re-education camps because they are seen as subversive. They're seen as enemies of the Chinese state. You know, the gulag system, you had millions go through, 17 or 18 million go through during the Stalinist period. You had up to 2 million dying in those gulags. So many people can be charged with treason or, with other, other crimes, you don't just have to use treason, but you can be seen as an enemy of the state, an enemy of your class, an enemy of the proletariat, an enemy of the Soviets. There are many crimes that you could be charged with.
1: But that, that isn't really about treason, is it? That's about control. I mean, but, treason but, is rare.
2: But, but, but treason is often seen as a catch-all so so everyone is viewed as treason. If, if you look at America, there have only been about 30 people ever charged with treason. In the Soviet Union, there have been millions charged with treason. And if you want religious examples, you can go back to 1517 and Martin Luther coming up with his 95 Theses, which went against the papal orthodoxy, papal control. And in response to that, Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, set up the Diet of Worms. And you had Luther condemned, not only as a heretic, but as an enemy of the state. And this began the push that ended up with the Council of Trent, with the counter-reformation, with this huge clampdown on Protestants. And it led to massacres. You've got the Huguenot massacres in the 1570s, thousands of them, up to 80,000 of them killed across France. You have the blood councils burning tens of thousands of people uh, under the Inquisition and, and the Spanish in the low countries. So treason can spread, the definition can spread, even if these people have simply butted up against their heads up against the authorities
1: that they disagree with uh, what's being, you know, the, the status quo.
2: They, they disagree with the orthodoxy. And again, you, you look at modern times. I mean, just recently, there's been a guy who's been charged with treason for carrying a crossbow within the grounds of Windsor Castle because that is a direct threat to the monarch. So that's, you know, Britain for you. But you go to Russia...
1: I hope he was arrested by a (laughs) (laughs) beef-eater. With a halberd. He's now in in the Tower of London, eating gruel out of a wooden bowl.
2: (laughs) Bored to death by a Uh, 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 beef-eater. But you get that in the UK. But in Russia, meantime, you get the possibility, the chance of being given 15 years in prison for referring to a war in Ukraine, rather than mentioning it as a as a, a special military operation.
1: Yes, I mean, it's, it's almost Python-esque, isn't it, that over here we think that's just absurd. And yet over there, it's a serious thing. You said something like that on the radio, and you really would be banged up.
2: Once more, in Russia today, you don't have to be charged with treason. You can be charged with fraud. And, and then they simply keep on extending the sentence, which is very useful for the authorities. You look at 2016 and Sergei Magnitsky being charged posthumously. It, it's almost medieval. There was an empty cage. He had died in 2009, had uncovered fraud within the Russian system, plainly linked to Putin. So Putin had him put on trial after his death.
1: Very much like uh, Oliver Cromwell.
2: Well, exactly, and we'll come to that later. But so you get Magnitsky, and now you have someone like Alexei Navalny who's done on fraud because he's an opposition leader and an opponent to the Putin regime. And they all they do is simply increase the, the length and scale of his sentence, and we'll go on doing so. so. So this is what happens with treason. And as we said at the beginning whether it's war or the Cold War, external pressures and internal political fissures and tensions, they can increase the application of treason, the laws on treason. They can broaden the the, the remit of any treason act and
1: you can be caught by it. So how would you define treason in its true form? Where does it come? Where does the definition come from?
2: Well, in in Britain, and actually through a lot of the rest of the world who have adopted this, including the the Bill of Rights in in the United States, it started as long ago as 1351 under King Edward the Third, and it was a narrow interpretation. So, the very wording giving aid and succor or aid and comfort to your enemy that was in the Act then is then incorporated later on into the Crime and Disorder Bill in Britain in 1998. You know, It was incorporated into treason acts before then and incorporated into American law and other laws. So it's, it's basically death to the, the leader, the monarch, where there's a monarch, but aid and comfort to the enemy, helping the enemy. Um, that is really the, the, the root of treason uh, as it is interpreted today. It's a good description. It's a good description, but like the Soviet Union, not that one wants to make comparisons between the Soviet Union and the United States, but during the Cold War, once more, you get these pressures to to expand who are considered traitors, who are considered enemies. So in 1947, uh, you got the Hollywood Ten being charged with such things as perjury and uh, contempt of Congress.
1: Well, this is the House Un-American Activities Committee.
2: Exactly. So you get Joseph McCarthy bringing in this legislation and it became very powerful. you got hundreds of people blacklisted in Hollywood, a lot of
1: screenwriters. Yeah, it was a witch hunt. uh, It, it, it?
2: It was a witch hunt. And this is what can happen if you get people who... Well, there were quite a lot of communists around who refused to testify or admit they were communists. People like Bertolt Brecht fled. A lot of people sought refuge overseas. Many, many never worked again in in Hollywood in the in the movie industry. So there was this sort of witch hunt, and you can see how these sort of definitions can start to expand when there are political pressures at home or abroad.
1: Okay, well, you know we like to dig around in the ancient world and find some examples. So what happened in ancient Greece, if you were a traitor?
2: Well, we're calling this section throwback. Maybe maybe we should call it throw up.
1: (laughs) I think it's throw down when you hear... (laughs) Throw out and down.
2: (laughs) It probably is. I I think one of the things to take on board about treason in, in ancient cultures is that so often the survival of that state, of that system, depended on loyalty, depended on rigid loyalty to that system. So if you had traitors within that system, you had an undermining of what people valued, of of, of their very survival. So so they took pretty major steps against those they considered traitors. So a guy called Lescapas, he was put in a sack and thrown in the sea and drowned, there was a guy called Byril or Beryl. Uh, he, he was accused of treachery. And so the Athenian men stoned him to death and the Athenian women stoned his wife to death. So they, 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 they had pretty major consequences for, for, for those who were accused of treason, found guilty of treason. That's a bit brutal. <laughs> <laughs> certainly
1: is. <laughs> Uh, she sh- sh- <laughs> so thinking of Monty Python. <laughs> are, <laughs> are any women here? <laughs> <laughs> so in ancient Greece, it was mostly city-states, Athens and Sparta, and they were protecting their own uh, states amongst themselves. So what, what would happen in Sparta or Athens if you were caught being a traitor? It, it depended
2: hugely. I mean, there was one regent in because they had two kings and there was one in Sparta in 477 BC was simply bricked up into the temple of Athena but on the whole you could either be beheaded or you could be thrown off a cliff that was that was a favourite both in Athens and Sparta so at Chiadas in Sparta you would be thrown off in Athens you'd be thrown off a cliff at Varathrons so uh, went into a deep trench yeah into a deep trench and and so but they were always throwing people off cliffs they they quite often threw unwanted babies and children off cliffs as well so yeah.
1: it's the precursor to defenestration a popular uh, way of getting rid of people in the middle ages
2: and And today, if you're Russian, I see another another Russian oil man was fell out of a sixth story window in a Moscow hospital. So <laughs> it can happen to the best of people and the worst. But this is a way of of enforcement in ancient times that they, they simply had to make a statement. they They had to show that this is what happened if you either broke the law, were a criminal, or, were treasonous that, that you had let down your side, had undermined your side.
1: And and the theme is, is you're not only going to be put to death, but it's going to be in a particularly unpleasant fashion.
2: I think unpleasant fashion is something that has gone through history. It was like hanging, drawing and quartering in, in England that went on for a long time, from medieval times onwards. So it was always a spectacle. It was always something the public had to be reminded of, that treason, treachery... Didn't pay,
1: and a few hundred years later, we have greater definition of treachery by the Romans. What was going on there?
2: Yes, you get perduelio, the the, the law of high treason. This this concept that that if you aid and abet your enemies, then you are guilty of treason, a that, capital
1: th- offence. That's
2: a capital offence, and that that idea is what really fed into uh, later laws in 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 the west but of course what happens is as soon as you get the emperors coming and as soon as you get this idea of the emperor being a demigod or even a god in rome you're going to start getting those the boundaries of those laws spreading so anyone can be accused of treason it becomes a political tool so you see it happening to people like Cicero, caught up in these political machinations and ending up having his head cut off and that head and his hands uh, being nailed to the roster in the forum because he had criticised Mark Antony. He was on the wrong side.
1: And this was all following on from the assassination of Julius Caesar.
2: There you go, 60, 60 senators getting involved in that believing that they were on the side of justice that they were standing up to a tyrant but the death of that tyrant ended up causing war and causing political upheaval and in political upheaval and autocracy you're going to get a lot of people accused of treason so by the time you get to emperor such tiberius you get this broader definition of treason just as before you got the 1351 Treason Act in, in England, you had a wider definition for treason then. Even stealing or killing the, the king's deer in England was considered a treasonous act, a capital act in England until 1351, so, so laws can shift, definitions can change.
1: Right, Jamie, on to our next section, which is collaboration and revenge. And we're going to start in America in 1780. Benedict Arnold.
2: He's always held up as a great example of treachery, of treason. And once more, it shows this conflict of interest, the problems that occur in terms of conflict and and occupation, that you're always going to get people whose loyalties are divided or whose loyalties are suspect. And Benedict Arnold was one of them. Who knows what his motive was? Uh, I mean, after he fled, he sent a letter uh, talking about his love of his people and the love of his country and that he would be unfairly uh, condemned for what he had done but uh, it seems to me that he was essentially motivated by money he he had a terrible reputation for for his his black market activities he had a reputation for selling food from the west point of fort that he took over in 1780 that of selling the food of undermining the defences of not uh, keeping the defences of the chain across the the river in good repair, but he did his best to undermine those defences and sell out to the English forces.
1: But did that mean that he was essentially in favour of, of the status quo and that he wanted the the English crown to remain in charge of America?
2: I think that's probably the case. In fact, he got a commission once he escaped uh, to England, but he wasn't liked by. English army officers uh, back over here. He ended up, I think, going to Canada uh, to join his sons because he wasn't trusted, and the the Whig opposition in 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 London absolutely loathed him. So he he sits as a very uncomfortable figure and a great example of collaboration and how if you collaborate with the wrong side, with the losing side, you're going to be condemned forever in history. Had he been on the winning side, history would have been different. He would have been viewed
1: perhaps more- Whenever you have a, whenever you're a traitor, it's always going to be considered that if you've done it once, you might do it again for the other side you might swing back in the other direction
2: and and that that often happened it's interesting it was so convoluted his negotiations the fact that the person with whom he negotiated john andre an an english officer was captured and hanged by washington Uh, he asked to be killed by firing squad as a gentleman but that didn't happen and worse would probably have happened to Benedict Arnold. Uh, you know, originally Benedict Arnold w- was sort of going to meet on the HMS Vulture and that boat was attacked by uh, British gunships and the commander got a splinter in his nose. But but eventually Arnold managed to escape from New York, managed to escape from Virginia and, and get on board HMS Vulture and sail away. But Washington spies almost captured him.
1: All right. Well, um, let's move it on a little bit to the Second World War and collaboration after the war in France.
2: Well, it's on a bigger scale than Benedict Arnold because it wasn't just talking about the uh, handing over of West Point to the enemy. This was about large numbers of people collaborating with the Nazis. It was said by an MI6 source, a Frenchman, that, that every French village had gener- generally a couple of uh, collaborators, a cu- couple of traitors. In, uh, It was always very difficult setting up uh, an agent base in, in the countryside throughout France. So there was always that problem.
1: And, and you can hear quite a lot about that in 21st, heroines of the 20th century.
2: Yes, we have covered it before. But what's interesting about what happened after the war was what happened to those charged with collaboration. Uh, Officially, the French state only executed 971, but unofficially, it's estimated that between 80,000 and 100,000 were summarily executed. But a lot of those would have been personal feuds of vendettas that are so... Common in French villages and throughout that France, that
1: boundary boundary fence dispute finally resolved. Yes, one is often tempted. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes, you've got one of those, haven't you?
2: Well, exactly. So, so you you, you get that problem. And many people have seen those images of French women who had fraternized and slept with German soldiers, having their heads shaved and being paraded through French towns and being mocked.
1: They probably weren't killed, though, were they, the women? I suspect so.
2: As I said, a lot of it would have been black market feuds. There, there was that huge tension between the communists and the free French. Yeah. You know, so there were all those sorts of rivalries. So betrayal, as we've talked about before, in these situations where loyalties are divided, where a country is occupied you are going to get these sorts of problems. You're going to get a a broad interpretation of what treason is. And it can be personal or it could be state-induced, if you like.
1: And there are some very strange outcomes to uh, treason and treachery. I mean, after the war, um, when suddenly the Americans and the Soviets were facing each other, he had the extraordinary Galen organisation...
2: It's really to do with necessity. You know, the West, America, had a need to penetrate the defences of the Soviet Union to find out what was going on, uh, to keep an eye on what was going on in, in West Germany. And so the Galen organisation was set up uh, in Pulak in, in Munich, outside Munich. And it used, it went around the internment camps and, and essentially hoovered up what, a recru- recruited,
1: recruited yeah. a
2: huge number of nazis and i remember one of them was the former head of gestapo weiss and he had been put in dachau concentration camp because he had black male senior nazis was so brutal at the camp he was actually used as an enforcer by the guards ended up running a penal battalion was very successful in hunting soviet partisans during the second world war was then recruited by the galen organization he he apparently uh, had destroyed the ss uh, the tattoo under his armpit with a with a dummy dummy bullet and thought he'd survived but was recognized by one of his victims at Dhaka, or the wife of one of his victims at Dhaka, was arrested put in prison but then recruited and he disappeared trying to lay phone-tapping cables across the canals of Berlin. So these sort of fluid situations, these extraordinary events, people can either be caught in them or make a decision. Just just often it's potluck uh, or it's the situation at the time. And one moment they're a hero, the next they're a traitor. And and that often happens in war.
1: And it's no doubt happening uh, at this very moment in Ukraine and the special military operation?
2: Well, we've seen what's happened in the Kherson oblast in the, in that region and, and, and across Russian-occupied zones, because you get those who have sold out to the Russians, those who helped the Russians take over in those areas, those who have taken the shilling of the of the Russians to work in their administrations and they are being picked off with car bombs with pump action shotguns a recent example was one who was killed with a shotgun blast and his wife uh, had her throat cut so it's it's very messy it's very unpleasant and what's happening to Ukraine today in terms of collaboration and revenge is pretty similar to what happened in occupied France. This is what happens when an enemy takes over and loyalties are
1: suspect. Right, well, before we go on to the next section, I just want to make the point that it's never as simple as it might seem once history's been written. I mean, we've got examples of what happened in Norway uh, at at the end of the, in the Second World War with the Quisling.
2: And Quisling was executed in the same way that William Joyce was executed uh, for treason by this country. Lord, um, he, he had been a propagandist for the Nazis throughout the war. Uh, and although he was viewed as a joke by m- most Brits during the war he had gone out of his way to undermine the British war effort, the Allied war effort. And, and so, I mean, he
1: was no sort of lord, was he? was sort a of weaselly little con man, wasn't he?
2: He was deeply unpleasant. They were, always were. But and, uh, but this is the thing about collaborators. They, so often they start as petty criminals. So So often they start as people who haven't got very far. And then uh, war comes along and by collaborating they do well in the same way that having a fascist regime or a soviet regime seems to elevate very mediocre people to uh, the, the 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 level of statesman and this is this is what's so extraordinary but and-
1: sometimes you get truly Britain. Ezra Pound the poet who um was so upset by what happened in the first world war that he essentially swung towards the fascist cause in the 30s
2: well i think so much is is affected by what has happened before and the chaos that has happened before and he was a modernist poet responding to what he had seen in the first world war and he didn't like the international capitalism he saw it usury and he he bought into mussolini's fascist italy and and like William Joyce started broadcasting against the Allies and he paid the price for that. He's very lucky not to have been executed in America when he was brought back and he was held in a steel cage for quite a while and... In Pisa, yeah. Yes, and... and, and Went mad essentially. He ended up in the. Well, city. I'm not
1: sure he went mad. i They locked him up as saying he was a loony, didn't they?
2: Yes, but I. But I think he was pretty unstable by the end. I think he. He didn't have a happy time, let's
1: go. No, well, put they put him out. away for 12 years in St. Elizabeth's Psychiatric Hospital in, in America, in Washington.
2: They did, and eventually he was released. I mean, there was such a campaign to see him see him free, and he, he ended up back in Italy and spending his days up until the early 1970s. But it, it rarely ends well for traitors, and it rarely ends well for those who have collaborated during a conflict and have, uh, end up on the losing side.
1: And a little bit of trivia, as you might have noticed, we occasionally use the word So It Goes, which features in Slaughterhouse-Five. Billy Pilgrim is the hero of that particular book, and he comes across Ezra Pound in his cage as part of his journey. Right, on to scapegoating and redemption. There's a famous quote that Stalin made.
2: If there is no man, there is no problem. or words to that effect. And it really sums up how easy it is to scapegoat someone, particularly in a totalitarian regime or an autocratic regime where there's no opposition. You simply point your finger and that person is in trouble.
1: So essentially, by, by saying there is no man, I mean removing the man.
2: Yes, removing the man. Even if that man has not been a traitor, even if that man has not been a collaborator, you can be charged, you can be blamed. And we mentioned Sergei Magnitsky being put on trial posthumously by Putin. This has been going on throughout history, that that you drag someone up, even from the grave, and charge them with treasonous acts or heretical acts. You, know, you got that in... 897 AD when Pope Formosus was was disinterred and dragged to what was called the Cadaver Synod became known as the Cadaver Synod and put on trial by Pope Stephen VI and he was accused of all sorts of things of exceeding his papal authority of perjury you name it and he was found guilty and the corpse had that his fingers cut off of the right hand, the hand that was used to give blessings. He had his vestments torn off and his body was thrown in the Tiber. But it was eventually retrieved by a priest and brought back and, and uh, eventually put back in its,
1: its grave. So These things, though, set a, a bad precedent, don't they? Because, you know, autocratic rulers, once they're no longer in charge or dead, the same can happen to them
2: exactly you can fall out of favor but but it just shows that autocratic leaders they don't want to make an example just of the living but also of the dead Uh, later on uh, just as another example you can see what happened to the tyrant oliver cromwell who in 1661 when Charles II was restored to the throne. His body was dug up with several others, including John Bradshaw, who was the presiding judge at the trial of Charles I, who had sentenced Charles I to death, with Henry Ireton, a general in the war against the royalists. And
1: Oliver Cromwell's son-in-law.
2: Indeed, that didn't help. So their bodies were all dug up. They were hung at, at Tyburn. Their bodies were thrown in the pit at Tyburn. their heads were cut off and stuck on 20-foot pikes above Westminster Hall, the very hall in which Charles I had been found guilty and, and, and uh, was, was condemned to death. So these three bodies, you, you can still be done for regicide and treason after your death, essentially.
1: And not only can you be pursued after your demise, but if somebody wants to find a traitor, the best place, one of the best places to look is into a minority group and uh, often in this case uh, the Jewish community.
2: It's very easy to double down on a minority and the Jews have been very useful scapegoats and have often been accused by totalitarian regimes of lack of patriotism, lack of commitment to the nation in which they live and of treason and this feeds into the the, the sort of autocracy this feeds into the to, to the myth that the rulers the leaders
1: can use. Uh, there's a very famous uh, example of this that went on for many years the Dreyfus affair.
2: 1894 and there was uh, an officer an artillery officer in the French army who was accused of treason there had been a, a note found in a in a been at army headquarters, and, and Dreyfus was pulled out as the candidate uh, for treason and and
1: this was what passing secrets to the german high
2: command and, uh, completely he was he was accused Supposedly. Of, he was accused of that put on trial in front of a secret military tribunal the, the, the military avoided using evidence that might have shown that he was innocent later on they started padding out the file with more evidence faked evidence against him it, it's fake news
1: and Was that partly because uh, the French military were inherently very anti-Semitic?
2: It was certainly growing throughout that period. And once you had uh, Dreyfus's brother taking on his cause, you had this campaign by writers such as Zola and others showing that he'd been set up. You got this huge anti-Dreyfus rise in anti-Semitism, anti-Dreyfus, anti-Semitic, uh, sentiments growing throughout France.
1: Yeah, and the military went after his brother and Zola and anyone else who who tried to show that he wasn't a traitor.
2: Yes, they did, and they, they it allowed them to start saying the left are anti-patriotic, they're anti-French, anti-France. So this became a cause celebre. And later on, he was retried after five years in Devil's Island. He was retried and found guilty again. Uh, he was only exonerated in about 1906. And that took a long time for him to be acquitted. And he ended up serving loyally in the French army during the First World War uh, and died in the early 1930s. But he had a terrible time. And and it it shows how easy it is to scapegoat a minority. And it's worth going back in history to see where it started and and examples of it and how easy it is to to crack down on, on those minorities.
1: And, uh, yeah, we are not without blame in this country because uh, the Jewish pogroms in England started in 1190.
2: They started very early. Uh, William the Conqueror had brought the Jews over from places like Caen in the late 11th century because he saw that they had very successful merchants, they could bring banking, they could help develop his kingdom, his new kingdom of England. So he brought them over. But again, because they, they stuck to their own communities, they had their own areas in places such as London and York, they were easy targets when tensions rose. So 1190, a rumour spread that the king had ordered a massacre of the Jews. So what happens? There's a pogrom. You, you, you got it again in the 1260s and in the mid-14th century. And there were rumours that fed into It's so similar to the sort of rumours that, The Nazis spread how easy it is to get these things rolling. Uh, There was one rumor that that there had been this red fungus found on the sacrament, found on the holy wafers in churches in England, and that was very common in sort of unleavened bread. You you get this fungus. But the rumour went around that the Jews were breaking into the churches and stabbing Christ once more, killing Christ once again. So you can imagine, as we said at the beginning, that that once you get religious fervour behind it, you can start scapegoating, you can start accusing anyone of treason. And that is something that that travelled on in history. Do you think
1: the king uh, would actually have to express his desire for you know jewish people to be killed or is it rather like supposedly in the putin regime today where he just sort of or henry king henry and thomas beckett where he expresses his you know dislike of something and people read into that
2: i i I think it it fuels a sentiment that always Already there, and it's quite useful for the authorities to do everything by sleight of hand. We talked about the Putin regime not really having to bring up treason; they just simply bring up fraud charges and then trump up the charges and and get false evidence. So it, it it's not a hard thing to do. But with anti-Semitism, whether it's in Russia, for example, the pale of settlement that that Jews weren't allowed to settle in Mother Russia, they had a distinct region where they could settle and so you were always getting these exoduses of jews the persecution of jews in russia
1: and that went on from 1791 to 1917 the pale the paler settlement
2: well and, and then the jews started heading into russia because of the advance of of the german forces in the second world war so so you got even more tensions and you look at russia today and of the estimated two million Jews in Russia, you're getting tens of thousands currently leaving Russia because they know that when Russian nationalism is on the rise, you are going to get extremism and you are going to get scapegoating. So, so nothing really changes. And, of course, you, you we have the evidence of what happened in Nazi Germany, that, again, they were scapegoated. It's very easy to link them in the Nazi mindset with international Zionism, capitalism, all the bad things that America and the Allies and the West represent. So, so this scapegoating of minorities, whether it's the Jews or the Uyghur in China today, you, you can call them extremist and subversive, and bang, you've, you've, you've got your target.
1: And it's so mad that, um, I believe, in Dachau, um, it was used supposedly by the Nazi authorities. They were saying it was for calming measures.
2: That was what Himmler called it. And Dachau was the first concentration camp to be established in 1933. And people who went there you know, wore red tags. But you could be sent there for for not just being a leftist, but for being, for example, a Jehovah's Witness. And they say that, you know, 2,000 Jehovah's Witnesses died there. 10,000 were were sent there out of 20,000 Jehovah's Witnesses in Nazi Germany. And they were accused of subversion, of being against conscription, of trying to undermine the, the German creed by going around and preaching. So, again, it's, it's a useful target. It's, 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 it's easy to scapegoat these people. And uh, Dachau was just one of the repositories of these so-called
1: traitors. Jamie, is there ever an opportunity for redemption?
2: There certainly is. We, we've talked about how war can change the the, the climate, how, how if there's a use for something, if there's a use for a scapegoat, there's a way of basically using that scapegoat in a more positive way, or using them for sacrifice, using them as cannon fodder. And it depends on the politics, how that changes, it depends on the mood of the autocrat, and it it depends on the fortunes of war. Look what happened to Soviet generals in the Second World War. Many of them had been purged in the in in the great Purge of nineteen thirty seven onwards and had a terrible time. Many were executed, many were imprisoned. But there is redemption because Stalin found that after the invasion of the Soviet Union, he needed generals so They were rehabilitated and sent back to the front. You take someone like Rokossovsky, who was an incredible general, very brutal, very harsh, but successful. And he had endured two mock executions. Uh, When he was purged, he came back to the front with his fingernails pulled out, with his ribs broken. But he was a hard man. They were all very hard men. You get someone like uh, Kirill Moretsov, General Kirill Moretsov, he had predicted the the invasion of russia and was arrested for that and because stalin was looking for a scapegoat but again stalin required good generals so he managed to Survive and was sent back to the front he he did he was defeated in a battle, but managed to pass the blame on to another general kavarasov
1: an underling up,
2: an underling who ended up collaborating with the germans you say. so
1: his goose was cooked
2: his goose was truly cooked. so so it it, it it was a fluid and difficult time, shall we say
1: and I mean the difference between Stalin and Hitler there is i mean Stalin was more likely to shoot his generals, but he had the sense to realize that operational and tactical command of armies had to be carried out by generals and not by him.
2: Well, ultimately, when they lose, if they're all shot, there's no one else to blame, as Putin is going to discover in the Ukraine. This this is the problem. If you have hands on control, ultimately, just like Hitler was such a bad commander, you know, in the east because he had personal control and was forever losing his armies because he told them to stand and they were surrounded and wiped out, like the German 6th Army at Stalingrad. So these Soviet generals, they knew how to pass the blame, shift the blame, and they knew how to survive. And the way to survive was achieving success.
1: It was generally the case that if you fell foul of Stalin as a general, you didn't survive... And there are plenty of examples of that.
2: Oh, Dmitry Pavlov didn't didn't survive because he was told to counterattack late in the war by Stalin. He didn't have any forces, so he couldn't. And he was arrested with several other generals and and executed. But, but Men like Zhukov survived. He, again, had been caught up in the purges, but went on to succeed at Leningrad and ultimately in the, in the race for Berlin. So he was a success story.
1: Except he then got semi-purged after the war, didn't he, and sent into, into quite a long period of excommunication.
2: That's always the trouble. We, we've talked about political changes, about the regime changing and finding yourself on the wrong side. Look, look at Nazi leaders. I mean, someone like Hermann Goering, for example, he had been the the, the sort of uh, deputy of, of Hitler, was seen as a successor, but he fell foul of the politics. So when Hitler was stuck in the bunker and Goering offered himself as, as the next Führer, as someone who could take control from down south, from, from the Ober Salzburg mountain, who should have him arrested but the chief exec of the Nazi Party, Martin Bormann. And Goering was Hitler very lucky. Was
1: furious.
2: Uh, completely <laughs> furious, because Martin Bormann had spun a story about Goering's treachery. So so Goering was going to be be executed for treason. But he, he managed to get over to the Americans before that happened, escape to the Americans. Eventually, as we know, he took cyanide at Nuremberg and, and died there but th- this is what happens in war this is what happens under pressure uh, treason is a very easy thing to throw around but as we've mentioned with the Russian generals that th- there is redemption sometimes and and it happens at a lower level too it's not just the generals it can happen to, to lower ranks and, and this was found in the penal battalions of the second world war
1: And give us a few examples of Soviet and German penal battalions.
2: This was a way for prisoners, a lot of them political prisoners, uh, finding their way back to society, of being pardoned. So both the Soviets and the Nazis used them. Um, The first Soviet penal battalion, uh, just over 900 men, were sent to to Stalingrad and after three days there, there were only 300 left. So, throughout the war, these penal battalions, punishment battalions, were used in the most dangerous missions. And that happened with certainly with the Soviets under Order 227, where you had these penal battalions, you had the order not to retreat, you had the enforcer battalions from the NKVD uh, shooting those front regiments, those frontal units that were trying to retreat. So you had all this coming together and it was just a way of getting manpower to the front. So the Soviets used it. The Germans also used straf battalions in a big way and a lot of them came from Dachau and and other concentration camps. So those who weren't guillotined, those who weren't hanged, ended up being sent forward so you have for example the 500th punishment battalion and by the end of the war 27,000 people have been through it they suffered a lot of casualties but they were always used in riskier operations you also have the 999th light African division, and they had about 28,000 people going through that during the war, again being used in the most dangerous operations, reconnaissance and things like that, and, and, and really being the cannon fodder, really being pushed forward uh, when other battalions were in the rear.
1: Was there any, any equivalent in any way on the American, British or Commonwealth side That you could consider to be a sort of penal arrangement.
2: Not as far as I know, there there was greater integration. I think. I mean, there there were definitely layers of 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 competence and professionalism, and so different battalions were used, in different in the same way that you always get elites in every army. But what's interesting today is that you're still getting this. Both in Ukraine, I mean, uh, President Volensky has announced that prisoners can join battalions and win their pardon, win their spurs through through doing military work. Uh, We all know that Putin's Russia has been going around, the Wagner Group have been going around prisons, recruiting prisoners and saying, this is a way out. This is your chance to be pardoned, to finish your sentence. Uh, however dangerous it is for some prisoners it's an option it's it's a way out It's it's a way of redemption so whether it's the generals or the people lower down the pecking order work in the military finding a way back from from whether you're a scapegoat or just a prisoner finding a way back through military service is an option
1: Yes, so I suppose the answer to that on the Allied side, not including the Russians, is that the generals who aren't up to it um, just get retired and go to their cottages in Sussex or whatever, and the soldiers, they, they don't need to be motivated in the same way.
2: Well, in, in the Western forces in the Second World War, if you had what wasn't sort of viewed as shell shot, but if, if you were seen as, as as having some kind of battle injury, battle fatigue or lacking moral fibre or whatever they called it you didn't tend to be charged with treason that was something completely different whereas you certainly could be charged with that by the totalitarian regimes in Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union
1: Now I want you to get in touch with your inner George Smiley and head towards the cold war
2: the cold war was always going to throw up its fair share of traitors i mean, so many of the spies certainly in the the early years of the cold war had been recruited in the late 1930s 1940s so they were they were sort of part of that that intellectual and political discourse, the clash between communism and fascism or or democracy and communism. So they were caught up in that. So they were a different breed from those that came later on, and and, and they were driven more by ideology. Whereas you come to the sort of late Cold War, the, the late 70s, the 80s, the 90s, and you start getting... Those who are basically doing it for money, and and you look at that group, that that trio of the worst traitors, really in the U.S. So you got John Walker, who established the Walker Spy Ring, selling naval communication secrets uh, to the the Soviets and and Russians. You got uh, people like Aldrich Ames, head of counterespionage at the CIA. And when you look at these characters, certainly Aldrich James, they were so low grade. I mean, this is what's so staggering about them. And how, it's always amazing how they weren't picked up. I mean, there was Aldrich James driving a Jag. His wife was running up a $6,000 a month telephone bill because she was phoning her, her relations back in Colombia. So and he had various properties it was so obvious that he was living way beyond his means and no one knew how but no one bothered to look at him and he and the third of that 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 triumvirate that Troya was um robert hansen in the fbi who did appalling damage to america's national interest and its security he was at the fbi and the intelligence community in, in Washington began to realise that Aldrich James, once he was caught, couldn't have betrayed all their sources, and so they started looking further. But well, there
1: are still things turning up.
2: There were still things turning up, and their sources that they paid out in Russia uh, turned up the file on, on Hansen, and he had given away. He, between them, Hansen and Aldrich James had given away... the the likes of GRU, Russian military intelligence, um, general, he was retired by this stage, Major General uh, Dmitry Polyakov, who was an incredible source for, for, for American intelligence. And he hadn't done it for money. He had done it out of ideology and his loathing for the Soviet system.
1: Did he get out?
2: No, he was captured and and executed and probably had a terrible end, uh, just like so many others. You think of Oleg Penkovsky and the rumour that he was thrown live into uh, a crematorium, thrown live into a furnace. Uh, Who knows what would have happened to people like But but a similar end. And he would have been very badly tortured. So... People like like Polyakov were given away, Oleg Gordievsky was given away by Aldrich Ames, but he managed to get out. He was smuggled out by MI6 uh, operatives uh, through Finland, through the border there, and he was very, very lucky.
1: Was that the dirty nappy incident?
2: That was the dirty nappy incident, uh, that which we 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 have mentioned in our, our our deception.
1: I'm qualified for that now that I've got a granddaughter.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> but, it,
2: but 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 I thought you were going to say because I'm sitting
1: here. <laughs> I'm not going to change your nappy. Jamie.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but 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 that's mentioned on our camouflage and deception podcast. But 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 th- this is what the West was up against, and and it's very difficult to spot these people it's very difficult to deal with these people i mean mi5 had another very low grade individual uh, who was an obvious security risk michael Bettany, who could have done terrible damage but luckily he was he was caught in time but but he could have been a real problem and so many of these people are either motivated by money or they have a drink problem. I mean, back in the 60s, there was Frank Bossard, who no one really has ever heard of, but he was an MI6 agent. He was, I think he was convicted to 21 years in prison, only served 10 and got out in the mid 1970s. But, but these names, they sort of, they, they disappear into the ether because we only remember the the, the the well-known and 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 the ones who have entered mythology and legend
1: and of course in uh, in England in, in in the UK the Cambridge five are the most famous
2: yes and 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 the most disgraceful i mean they would have known of the the horrors and terrors of the stalin regime and yet they continued to go on betraying secrets and when you see the sort of crocodile tears of people like Sir Anthony Blunt in his interview when he was revealed as one of the Cambridge Five, one of the traitors, and was then not imprisoned. It's absolutely staggering. And someone like Kim Philby, although he was revealed as a third man, always denied it and was then sent off to Beirut and eventually was revealed as the man, as one of the Cambridge Five. He, he defected. He had a deeply unhappy time in, in Beirut. They, they were all heavy drinkers, and they all ended up heading off. Burgess, McLean, and, and eventually Philby ended up in
1: Moscow. The following is an extract from
0: James Jackson's book, Cold Cut. Three days later, not far from Hakari, a passenger clambered wearily from a cattle truck and walked a short distance across the Syrian border into Turkey. Another transport, this one carrying animal feed, was waiting for him. He lay hidden, covered in sacks, his limbs numb as the vehicle struggled and swerved, its tyre chains searching for grip on the icy road north. Many times they were caught in snowdrifts. Many times he had to aid the cursing driver with a shovel, placing mats under the wheels to provide necessary traction. At least the weather reduced the chance of a Turkish roadblock or roving patrols. Between Van and Patnos the engine seized, but after four hours of tinkering, swearing at his nerveless blue hands and the driver, and taking gulps from his hip flask, the Englishman brought it back to life. A blizzard blew up in front, the driver refusing to go further in the desperate conditions, fearful for his safety, shouting incomprehensibly. It was madness to continue. The passenger took him firmly by the chin, twisted his face towards his own, and cocking fingers fired an imaginary bullet between his eyes. There was no need for words, explanation. The driver understood. Continue, or I will have you shot. He revved the motor. It was well into the following day when the exhausted pair made it to the rickety grass roofed tea-house at Dogu Paezet, on the southern slopes of Mount Ararat. There they parted company, the driver leaving rapidly, lest he be picked up for questioning by the Turkish authorities, the Englishman pushing his way through the wooden door to thaw a while, enjoy a Russian cigarette and wait for the bus to carry him across the featureless rockscape to the remote village of Agrelik. The Armenian owner grinned at his visitor, a face remembered. It was almost ten years since it had last come through that entrance. It looked much older, crushed by fatigue. Within three hours the bus had dropped the strange foreigner with his rucksack at the appointed destination. He would continue on foot. The Englishman felt his spirits lift. The tiredness slide away. He was so close. There would be time to rest later, to celebrate. The sun was beginning to set across the northern aspect of Ararat as he shouldered his back and headed for a further border. He saw the contours of the truck and moved towards it, two figures in quilted overjackets and wearing fur shapkas climbing from the cab as he approached The watchtower had seen him cross the wire at the prearranged time and radioed back to the command blockhouse in the rear. He was expected. Hand torches flickered rapidly between them. One of them stepped forward to greet the man Moscow Center had codenamed Stanley. They shook hands. The Russian hugs, the vodkas, the speeches would come at the reception. The Central Committee and Committee for State Security welcomed you to the territory of Union of Soviet Socialist Republic's Comrade Connell. Cold, wet, footsore, and ready to fall asleep where he stood, Harold Adrian Russell Philby, better known as Kim Philby, traitor, Soviet agent, officer in Britain's secret intelligence service, a man who had caused the deaths of hundreds, relaxed for the first time and smiled. He was home.
1: And then you had John Cairncross and... Well, and, mm-hmm. Anthony and, and Anthony Blunt, and Blunt, yeah, and
2: there were others like there were others like like George Blake from 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 that period.
1: So he escaped, didn't he? He had a
2: rather he was imprisoned and then escaped, and he too ended up in in, in in the Soviet Union. But the only one who really went on being of use to the Soviets, because usually defectors they're they're squeezed dry of information, and and then they have nothing more to offer. But but Philby maintained his position, kept on lecturing, looking at files, uh, lectured and instructed KGB agents who were heading to the West. And I think Oleg Gordievsky uh, spoke about Kim Philby uh, giving a lecture once So and probably looked at the file, trying to identify the, the traitor, trying to identify Oleg Gordievsky. So many of them just get drunk, have an unhappy time you look at that film an englishman abroad uh, about guy burgess meeting the actress Coral brown in moscow and he he died from liver failure in the in i think the 1960s at some stage i mean they 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 weren't a happy
1: bunch and to round off the cold war spies we have to just briefly mention the nuclear spies
2: the nuclear spies probably had more effect than than the, the, the sort of Cambridge Five for the simple reason that the information that the, the nuclear spies gave away, people like Klaus Fuchs, was technical and helped the Soviet Union develop nuclear weapons. So much of what the Cambridge Five and the, the other sort of traitors in the West gave the Russians wasn't believed or it overwhelmed them. And we spoke about this on our secret intelligence podcast that if the powers that be have a particular mindset, it doesn't matter how much intelligence you give them, how much you betray your country. The powers that be, the authorities, the government in the Soviet Union simply aren't going to believe you, are simply going to believe what they want to believe. But when it came to the nuclear scientists, they had an impact. And that's why people like the Rosenbergs in America were... Fried on the electric chair. Um, Klaus Fuchs, who was arrested, was luckier because he had actually spied for the Russians during a time when Russia, when the Soviet Union, was an ally of America. During the Second World War, so he actually got quite a lenient sentence. I think he only got fourteen years. So Wait, did
1: that, was that his defence that he wasn't really spying? It,
2: it certainly was one of the defences, and and he, he certainly got a lighter sentence because of it. He wasn't given the death penalty, and he ended up going to the Soviet Union and and lecturing there. So uh, sometimes you end up on the electric chair, sometimes you get away with it.
1: And the. Rosenbergs were unrepentant I think weren't they? They were unrepentant
2: they gave no information away and they certainly didn't uh, pass the buck uh, or blame any of the others with whom they were in contact so uh, they, they paid the price for that.
1: So it generally ends in misery and depression
2: it certainly ends with you having had your moment as a traitor and then finding that there's nothing else left. You've, you've either had no effect at all or the information you've given has been used, filed, and you're left to rot.
1: And you're going to live your life, especially if you defect from, from Russia, with the fear of, of revenge and assassination.
2: That is one of the problems. But if you defect the other way, you're, you're essentially going to live in a culture you thought you knew, you thought you admired, but then you find out that you've got nothing in common with it and you just grow old and drunk uh, in a nation that you don't like. Uh, someone like Guy Burgess and Donald McLean, they were addicted to cricket, so they were desperate to get the, the cricket results when they were over there.
1: It is desperate,
2: it is. I, 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 mean, I mean,
1: we're in the West. We're a little bit squeamish about the word treason, aren't we? I think we are. It's why there's the, the, so few people
2: actually charged with treason. We said this at the beginning, that that we have other laws now. Even though there is a treason clause in the American Constitution, in British law, you tend to have other laws that cover these things, such as the Official Secrets Act in the United Kingdom, and laws on espionage in the United States. So you don't really have to invoke treason. There are only about 30 people who have actually been charged with treason in the United States. So it's not often used. I'm only glad that, that someone like Kim Philby, who died in 1988, lived long enough to see the Soviet Union beginning to collapse. It's a pity he didn't see the Berlin Wall come down, but I'm glad he saw the fissures beginning to grow and the flaws in the ideology that he believed
1: in being shown for all to see. Although I bet even even that obvious uh, an effect or an evidence wouldn't wouldn't have necessarily changed his mind. He was so invested in his original ideas. That's true, that's true. But he couldn't have been happy. No, good. Okay, Jamie, well we're gonna end with our PS, we're going to talk about the great Christian traitor, Judas Iscariot. Well, you gave a
2: clue in your introduction with 30 pieces of silver, so it's a good way to end with Judas Iscariot, because he's always held up as the great traitor of history. The man who called Jesus rabbi, kissed him, signaled to the Romans that He was the man to be arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so that that great story began, that extraordinary story of uh, the trial of Jesus, the crucifixion, the resurrection. And Judas Iscariot was key to that. And so he's always been vilified throughout history as one of the Twelve Apostles. And it's an important story because it shows that in the midst of any group, of any gang of any group of apostles you get someone who isn't a true believer there is someone who doesn't follow that creed and is selling out is a doubter if you like
1: who isn't what they seem they are
2: and there are so many legends about Judas Iscariot because it's so sketchy obviously in in the New Testament, so the, the, first of all, people concentrate on the surname to find out who he was and and what motivated him. so you get people looking at iscariot and saying that means that the family name was kerioth which which signals that he wasn't a man of galilee like the other apostles he was an outsider and so you get the beginnings of an understanding why he behaved the way he behaved there's another legend that if you look at his name if you if you deconstruct it you have in that name iscariot the sicari or sicari the the extremist element of the zealots the the anti-romans the anti-establishment group so you already get someone who who had violent instincts and then there's the the legend that he belonged to the uh, lost tribe one of the the 12 tribes of israel the reuben tribe and there's a story that they ended up in France of all places um, talking of treachery and collaboration <laughs> <laughs> yeah get that
1: winner. Get, get that one in at the beginning and the end the, um and and I mean to some extent he's a sort of MacGuffin, a, a plot device um a, a catalyst isn't he I mean it's a very he's a very important part of the story of Jesus um, a, he, of Christ you know being able to do what he did at the end
2: he's a vital part of that story i remember walking through gethsemane once and being overwhelmed by grief that but also this amazing story that on this site you got this act of betrayal and from it on the on the sort of rump end of the roman empire from this small sect you got this extraordinary religion that grew that preached love redemption and forgiveness and and Judas in his treachery and in his remorse when he hanged himself was the catalyst for that and it's why for example in the ethiopian coptic church he is regarded as a saint because without his action he would never have have seen the resurrection of the messiah he would never have caused the crucifixion and what happened after that so the, there would never have been a christian church and there would never have been the, the teaching of christ a, a, a across the globe so so the ethiopian copts see that as critical see judas as critical to that so i think you're right he's he's a very important figure but on a human level i think it's also important to see that that in a way treason treachery is part of the human condition is is part of our state of mind in a way there's always one there's always a viper lurking
1: well i think it's good to end on an up note So let's end on love, forgiveness, mercy and redemption. Thank you, Jamie. Thanks, Tom. It's what we're all about. So it goes. Thanks for listening. You can check out our website or send me an email on talk at bloodyviolenthistory.com and go on, leave us a review and five lovely stars. Thank you and good luck.